Hello, I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Editor-in-Chief of Annals of Internal Medicine, and I'm here to give you a quick overview of the new material in the journal that you'll find if you go to annals.org. The first article I'll highlight is a cross-sectional study of more than 25,000 adults that found that the prevalence of adrenal tumors in an unselected screened community population was 1.4%. The prevalence increased with age from 0.2% in adults aged 18 to 25 up to 3.2% in adults older than 65 years of age. However, approximately 70% of identified tumors were non-functioning. The detection rate of adrenal incidentaloma, an incidentally found nodule in an asymptomatic person, has increased as imaging techniques have improved and are used more frequently. However, most of what we know about the prevalence of adrenal incidentalomas comes from radiographic diagnosis in retrospective medical record reviews, which might under or overestimate the prevalence in an unselected screened population. The current study included 25,356 participants receiving annual health assessments in China between November 2020 and November 2021. Of these, 351 persons were identified as having adrenal tumors, 337 participants had adrenocortical adenomas, and 14 were diagnosed with another benign nodule. No participants had a malignant adrenal tumor. Of 212 participants who completed endocrine testing, about 69% were diagnosed with a non-functioning adenoma, 19% with cortisol autonomy, and 12% with primary aldosteronism. Nobody had a pheochromocytoma. An accompanying editorial highlights how this research provides important insights into the prevalence of adrenal tumors and supports current recommendations for universal hormonal testing in any patient with an incidentally found adrenal tumor. However, the editorial cautions that the study is limited by a lack of hormonal testing in 37% of participants, particularly because persons who declined hormonal workup tended to be older and thus more likely to have hypertension. As such, both mild autonomous cortisol secretion and primary aldosteronism could have been more prevalent in this group. Summary comorbidity scores, such as the Charleston Comorbidity Index and the Ellickshauser Comorbidity Index, are used to estimate comorbidity burden in observational studies and to estimate prognosis. The set of the Ellickshauser comorbidity indicators was developed in 1998, but has undergone modifications, including the addition of weighted scores and expanded comorbidity codes. The Agency for Healthcare Research and Quality also derived and evaluated the model fit of a summary Ellickshauser score based on weighting the individual comorbidities to predict in-hospital mortality and 30-day all-cause readmissions in hospitalized adults. However, the performance of the summary score has not previously been evaluated for predicting longer-term outcomes, nor has it been validated for use in older adults. Researchers from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health studied data from Medicare beneficiaries hospitalized in 2018, including those discharged with diagnoses of heart failure, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, and diabetes. The authors derived weights to calculate the summary Ellickshauser comorbidity score for in-hospital 30-day and one-year mortality. The score was then internally validated and calibrated for short and long-term mortality outcomes among older adults and those who were hospitalized for the three specified diagnoses. The authors also performed an external validation of Charlson and the AHRQ Ellickshauser comorbidity scores 
in predicting mortality among older adults. According to the authors, the internally validated summary Ellickshauser discrimination measures were minimally better than the externally validated measures from the other scores, a difference they expect to diminish or disappear when there is external validation of the summary Ellickshauser score. The Omicron variant of SARS-CoV-2 and reports of waning immunity after the first vaccine booster dose have prompted numerous countries to recommend a fourth dose for individuals at higher risk of severe disease. Despite high vaccination and booster coverage, Singapore experienced a resurgence of cases in July 2022 driven by Omicron BA5. From April 2022, persons aged over 80 years living in aged care facilities or medically susceptible to severe COVID-19 who received their first booster five months prior were invited to receive a second booster with the Pfizer or Moderna mRNA vaccines. The next article reports a study that used administrative data from the Ministry of Health in Singapore to emulate a target trial of a fourth mRNA vaccine dose versus placebo among individuals aged over 80 years who received their third dose five months prior to the study start. Those who received non-mRNA vaccines or had previously documented SARS-CoV-2 infection were excluded. On each day between April 6th to 21st of July 2022, individuals newly boosted with a fourth dose were matched to controls who were eligible but had not received a fourth dose in a one-to-one ratio based on age, gender, ethnicity, and housing type. Each person was followed up until the earliest occurrence of an outcome event, receipt of a fourth dose, or study conclusion. Study periods of individuals and their respective controls were matched to account for varying force of infection over time. Unmatched individuals were excluded from analysis. The researchers identified 40,030 individuals who received their fourth mRNA vaccine dose and matched them to 39,936 controls who were eligible but had not received their fourth dose. Individuals who received four doses had lower risk of symptomatic SARS-CoV-2 infection, COVID-19-related hospitalization, and severe disease. The authors conclude that a fourth mRNA vaccine dose confers additional sustained protection against hospitalization and severe disease from COVID-19 in an elderly Asian population during Omicron variant spread. The topic of this month's In the Clinic Review is venous thromboembolism. Venous thromboembolism affects up to 5% of the population. Venous thromboembolism commonly manifests as lower extremity deep venous thrombosis or pulmonary embolism. Half of these events are associated with a transient risk factor and may be preventable with prophylaxis. Direct oral anticoagulants are effective, safe, and have a lower risk of bleeding than vitamin K antagonists. Many patients with venous thromboembolism will have a chronic disease requiring long-term anticoagulation. Post-thrombotic syndrome affects 25 to 40 percent of patients with deep venous thrombosis and significantly impacts function and quality of life. Update yourself on the prevention, diagnosis, and treatment of this common condition by going to annals.org to read the In the Clinic review and check your knowledge with the accompanying quiz. On September 7th, Annals of Internal Medicine and the American College of Physicians hosted a virtual forum where expert panelists discussed current clinical challenges in the prevention and management of COVID-19. 
The panelists comprised of individuals who have been and continue to be frontline leaders in the fight against the virus used a series of clinical vignettes to demonstrate best practice approaches to patient care with regard to preventive and therapeutic interventions, including how and when to use the newly approved bivalent vaccines. A full recording of the forum and previous programs in this series is available on annals.org. Dr. George Abraham, past president of the American College of Physicians and an infectious disease specialist, moderated a panel that included Dr. Sabrina Asimu from Boston University, Dr. Camille Cotton from Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Carlos Del Rio from Emory University. This is our 10th COVID forum, and each time we gather, it seems that new information has just emerged. If you missed the live event, it's worth clicking on the video to see our panelists address up-to-the-minute information about the new bivalent vaccines, including important information about when they should and shouldn't be administered. Knee osteoarthritis is a major contributor to pain and disability. Exercise can improve pain, function, muscle strength, and quality of life in people with knee osteoarthritis and is universally recommended. Yoga is an increasingly popular low-impact exercise combining both static and dynamic postures with mindfulness strategies, making it a possibly beneficial exercise for people living with knee osteoarthritis. However, limited low-quality research in knee osteoarthritis shows some benefits with respect to pain, function, and knee stiffness from yoga programs delivered via supervised in-person group classes. Whether unsupervised yoga done at home is a benefit to persons with knee osteoarthritis has not been rigorously examined. In the next article, researchers from the University of Melbourne assigned 212 adults with symptomatic knee osteoarthritis to complete either an unsupervised 12-week online yoga program with an education component or online education only. They then compared improvements in knee pain during walking and physical function at 12 and 24 weeks after starting the program. The researchers found that participants assigned to yoga successfully completed two-thirds of the program and reported improved knee function compared to those who engaged in education only. However, both groups reported similar levels of knee pain during walking. The authors note that knee function benefits were not maintained among yoga program participants during the optional 12-week period following the initial mandatory program. According to the authors, their findings suggest an unsupervised online yoga program is feasible and improved physical function at 12 weeks while participants were engaged in the program. However, the improvement was modest and not sustained. They advise that additional research is needed to improve and sustain the effectiveness of this intervention. Patient-reported outcomes are important measures of treatment effect and can be used to inform the approval of drugs and devices by the FDA. Patient-reported outcome measures assess symptom burden, functional status, and health-related quality of life and are more reproducible than clinician-elicited measures, which can be limited by reporting variability. Despite recognitions of the stated importance of patient-reported outcome measures in clinical research, they remain underused in cardiovascular disease trials, and many of the measures used in research fall short on recommended properties that define high-quality measures. Cardiovascular researchers from McMaster University and University of Calgary created a comprehensive evidence map of 50 health status patient-reported outcome measures from 83 cardiovascular studies. They identified 45 disease-specific and five generic measures 
the disease-specific patient-reported outcome measures had been tested in specific cardiovascular disease conditions such as heart failure, ischemic heart disease, and arrhythmia. The investigators report that 22% of the 50 patient-reported outcome measures validated in cardiovascular disease had minimally important differences established, and 16% reported on the validation of all psychometric properties recommended by the FDA. Only two measures had all of their psychometric properties rated as sufficient quality, and 64% of the measures had less than 50% of psychometric properties rated as sufficient. According to the authors, their work highlights the need for careful adherence to standardized methodological criteria for patient-reported outcome measure development and validation and clear reporting of the psychometric properties of existing instruments. They add that given the use of patient-reported outcome measures to guide FDA approvals of drugs and devices in cardiovascular disease, there is a need for better adherence to quality standards in validation studies of the measures. Earlier this year, the U.S. Department of Veteran Affairs and the U.S. Department of Defense approved a joint clinical practice guideline for the management of major depressive disorders. Annals published a synopsis of the guideline that focuses on key recommendations with new evidence for pharmacologic management, pharmacogenomics, psychotherapy, complementary and alternative therapies, and the use of telehealth for treating patients with depression. In a change from the 2016 guideline, the 2022 guideline has two sections that refer to treatment of uncomplicated major depressive disorder and treatment of major depressive disorder that is severe or has partial or limited response to initial treatment to better align with the body of evidence and clinical practice. Several interventions that did not meet inclusion criteria or had limited recommendation in the 2016 guideline are now included or have a higher level recommendation. The VA DOD guidelines recommend a range of psychotherapies for treatment of depression and are the only major guidelines to address the use of ketamine, esketamine, and psychedelics. The guidelines suggest the use of ketamine and esketamine in patients who have not responded to other treatments and psychedelic treatments only in the research setting. Interventional treatments such as electroconvulsive therapy are recommended for patients with multiple failed attempts at therapy or a need for immediate relief from symptoms. While limited evidence suggests some benefit to computer-guided treatment, the guideline authors found insufficient evidence overall to recommend for or against telehealth for the treatment of major depressive disorder. Depressive disorders are common and are ranked third after headaches and pain in terms of years lived with disability. Although a broad range of effective treatments are available to treat depressive disorders, most people with depression do not receive adequate care. As such, it is important for patients and clinicians to have knowledge of and access evidence-based interventions. The guideline work group identified a broad and expanding range of treatment options for major depression. In about six weeks, Americans will have the opportunity to vote in the November election. It's important for medical professionals to vote because health policy set by elected officials directly affects their profession and the patients they serve. Over the past two decades, medical professionals voted about 20% less often than the general population. When asked why they did not vote, physicians often cited busy schedules, lack of voter registration, and feeling that their individual vote didn't matter. A commentary by physicians at Harvard and UT Southwestern describes a four-step framework to increase voter turnout among medical professionals, outlining specific actions that individuals and health systems can take. Whether you read the commentary or not, 
make sure you're registered to vote and get out to vote on November 8th. Who you vote for matters both to you and to your patients. Also new on Annals.org are three on being a doctor essays, several poems, and an Annals on Call podcast that discusses proctitis caused by monkeypox infection. That brings us to the end of the podcast. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll go to annals.org to take a closer look at some of the new offerings I've highlighted here. Stay well, and please look for the next podcast on October 4th. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support.